I have been um, this summer uh, entitling this series Getting Back to Basics. And I think it's getting back to basics. I mean, exploring different angles on baptism and Eucharist on the assumption that it's really what makes the church. I mean, somebody was asked one time, you know, what is a church? And it's a place that has the table and the font and the pulpit and people. And, and they ponder these realities in our midst. And it has always seemed to me that you can teach the Christian faith uh, powerfully through the sacraments. And so um, I've done three sermons on baptism. This is my last, this is fourth. And then I'm next week, I'm gonna, uh, next, yeah, it's next week. I'm gonna begin Eucharist and we're serving Eucharist next week. And so um, I'm not sure how far we're gonna go with it. I'm kind of making this up as I go. I hope you're okay with that. Um, but um, that's what we're up to. So this Sunday, um, we've got these two uh, remarkable texts from uh, the book of Revelation. On that first text, my, my teacher, Doug Otati, would call that a doozy, right? I noticed you choked on the thanks be to God. Did you? You probably did, rightfully so. I mean, in what sense, thanks be to God, after reading a text like that, the exploitations of the empire are profound and prolific. One of, the, one of the few places in the Bible where it actually mentions that kind of thing, and, and, and it's one of the few anti-slavery texts in the Bible. So it's something, something to look at. I mean, it's really a powerful... Uh, Barbara Rossing, uh, the, the very um, fine biblical scholar, explores this text. The second text is one of my favorite in all of Scripture, and it's the last vision in the Bible, so I um, draw your attention to it as I read it. Um, Revelation 22, 1 through 6. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit for each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. They need no lamp of the sun. They need no lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These are the words that are trustworthy and true. For the Lord, the God of the spirit of the prophets, has sent his angels to show his servants what must soon take place. This is the word of the Lord. I think I've told you before that I'm a morning person. I just, um, 
that's when I get most of my reading done. I get most of my thinking done. I mean, I can, I can go into the early afternoons, but after that, I slowly become brain dead. I just cannot function. And, that's, and, and especially right before we go to bed. I mean, and so, so reading novels just is an impossibility. People have suggested all kinds of things like short stories. That doesn't work. Just because they're short, it doesn't work. It'd have to be a paragraph long for it to work for me. I just fall asleep. Now, my wife is the complete opposite. She can, she can read War and Peace before she goes to bed and not fall asleep. Um, so I have taken to reading graphic novels. Now, I know that sounds like something a Presbyterian minister ought not to be reading, right? A graphic novel is actually just a comic book. And they've made novels into comic books. Now, I know some of you are shaking your head and that you think this is not the thing that we should be doing. But I mean, again, for somebody like me, it's better to watch little people, you know, you know across the stage as I'm, as I'm trying to stay awake so we can go to sleep together because it's a problem. And really interesting that of late, they published some very fascinating graphic novels because the publishers, I think, seem to think that we ought to be looking at this stuff. Did you know 1984, George Ordwell's uh, classic 1950, 19 something like that novel has been made into a graphic novel and I commend it to you. Um, it has something to say to us in our time and place. But a novel I've just picked up and really have gotten excited about, a graphic novel, is Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five. Now, maybe some of you have read that, the 1967 novel. I read it for the first time upon entry into college, William Jewell College in Liberty, Missouri, on the outskirts of Kansas City, where I went to college. Um, the powers that be there, right in the middle, right in the thick of the Vietnam War, thought that we ought to read an anti-war novel, and they chose Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five. And they were right about that, because Vietnam was the um, kind of the oppressive thing that was pressing in on all of us. We were either being threatened with the draft, or we had gotten out of it by some means, like perhaps going to college or a medical deferment, or uh, we got the luck of the lottery. Do you remember the lottery? I, I, was, I was one of those lucky ones that had a high uh, draft number, but they thought whoever we were, whatever we were, just because of the context, we needed to read a novel like this because it was everywhere. That is the Vietnam War. I mean, for those of you who lived through that will remember that almost every news broadcast they would, they would tell us the number that had died, the number that were wounded, and the number that were missing in action. And this happened in newspapers. It happened in almost every daily affair. It was all over the place. And so we read this and novel, and we talked about it. It was powerful. Um, it's about somewhat autobiographical Kurt Vonnegut's experience in World War II. He was taken prisoner right after the Battle of the Bulge, and uh, put in uh, prison in Slaughterhouse-Five, the bowels of a slaughterhouse in Dresden, Germany. And he survived the bombing of Dresden, Germany. One of the most horrific, tragic travesties of World War II. We don't even talk about it anymore. For two days, they firebombed Dresden between 30 and 40 
100,000 Germans died in two days. Again, we don't talk about it um, because we know it's a travesty. Kurt Vonnegut himself couldn't talk about it. He tried to write about it a few times in the 1940s and 50s. He couldn't do it. I suppose the trauma of the experience was too much. And then finally, he penned Slaughterhouse-Five in 1967. It was about Billy Pilgrim, and we kind of think that Kurt Vonnegut is Billy Pilgrim, uh, having been taken prisoner, and he was imprisoned and put in Slaughterhouse-Five himself. Uh, the bombing of Dresden kind of hovers over this whole scene. Billy Pilgrim, uh, true to a trauma victim, it seems, uh, time travels. He goes between his time in World War II and uh, his present day time as an optometrist. Now what's ironic about him being an optometrist is he himself uh, doesn't have good vision and he has trouble helping anybody else to see. It's, it's, it's kind of one of these ironic things that Kurt Vonnegut wants to put out, pull out of these things. On one of the occasions that he that he shifts, and, and these shifts happen almost mid-sentence, by the way, the time travel. He, he travels from World War II and the horrific experiences there to a present-day experience in 1963 when he can't sleep in his home. And so he gets up and he decides to turn on the TV. And as fate would have it, What's on TV is a documentary of World War II bombers, the pilots. And as he's, as he's watching the documentary, he has a vision. And in his vision, everything is going in reverse. And the graphic novel is particularly good at this. In the first frame, the fires from the bomb are being gathered up into the bomb casing itself. In the second frame, the bombs are going back up to the planes and gathered up into the planes. Remember, this is all going in reverse. In the third fr frame, the planes are reversing back down into their landing in England. In the next frame, the bombs are taken out of the planes and they're on their way back to America. In the next frame, they're in a factory in which the bombs are being opened up and the material of the bombs are being taken out of them. Remember, this is all going in reverse. And in the next frame, um, the, the, the material from the bombs are being put back into the ground. In the next frame, uh, the pilots are seemingly giving back their Uniforms. Remember, this is all going in reverse. In the next frame, those pilots are in a high school English class. In the next frame, they're babies in their parents' arms. In the next to last frame, we see two people in a garden. In the very last frame, they identify the two people. Do you know who they are? They're Adam and Eve. Do you remember the Joni Mitchell song? 
made famous by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Boy, am I dating myself. <laughs> I dreamt I saw a bomber jet plane flying shotgun in the sky, turning into butterflies over the nation. We are stardust. We are golden. And we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. You may remember that there were two trees in the garden. One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the partaking of which, according to the great theologian Paul Tillich, uh, meant a knowledge of finitude, knowledge of uh, mortality. Um, he called it angst, along with Reinhold Niebuhr. They both twinned on that. They called it angst, a sense of loss. Now, that's highfalutin language. That's too abstract. On the ground, what it looks like is uh, what Walker Percy, the great novelist, talked about the human self as, as a great sucking self. We tend to, it's, it's, it's all about greed. It's all about sucking everything in. And talk about graphic novels. That's what this text, the first text from the book of Revelation is about. For you see, Rome sucked everything into itself. And, um, and everybody then knew it. You see, if there are some people that are on the take, and they're greedy, and they're sucking everything into themselves. The interesting thing about the Bible and the New Testament, it's written from another perspective. It's written for those who are taken, from the perspective of those who are taken. And in particular, the book of Revelation is written from the perspective of those who are taken. So when Reinhold Niebuhr was asked the question whether um, the um, story of Adam and Eve was historically true, he answered, oh, it's much truer than that. Talking about the existential situation of humankind. We're among the takers and the taken. And the New Testament, in particular Revelation, is written from the standpoint of the taken. It's written from the standpoint of the exploited. That text, silver, gold, jewels, pearls, costly woods, bronze, all taken from the colonies. Deforestation, according to uh, Barbara Rossing, who is the preeminent scholar of ecological studies on the book of Revelation, uh, deforestation happened in, in Rome. So this is not just a modern thing. It happened, uh, the Romans did this to the colonies. They sucked everything in. And so when you get this great final scene, when, when Revelation tells us that the sea is no more, well, that was the means of exploitation. And the merchants in this text in Revelation 15 or 18 are mourning because, because they, 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 can't, they can't suck from the empire. They can't suck from the taken anymore. It's going to all end. And then it comes down to the end of that text. Horses, chariots, slaves, human lives. Literally, it says their, their souls were sucked out of them. That's what it literally says. You see, the book of Revelation is, 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 not, about, is, is not a prediction of, of, of things to come. It's, it's not um, about the, 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 how Lindsay's late great planet Earth and about being raptured up. Uh, not, it's not about being left behind. The only thing that should be left behind is those kind of interpretations of, of, of Revelation. 
It's about this worldly stuff. Revelation is a big political cartoon. It's a graphic novel about, about the, about the uh, um, exploitations of Rome against their people. It's a protest. Brian Blunt, in his magnificent commentary on the book of Revelation, says that it's a wake-up call to the churches who've accommodated themselves to the empire. They've been co-opted by the empire. And it speaks to us who also may be co-opted by realities that um, perhaps are taking us. It's a wake-up call. Brian Blunt even goes as far as to say that, that Revelation is telling us to pick a fight. Pick a fight. Now, it's a nonviolent fight. It's like nonviolent resistance, like Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat on a bus dominated by white people. It's that kind of, that kind of resistance. Barbara Rossing has a great word for it. She calls it lamb power. Because the lamb who is Christ features so prominently in the book of Revelation, she talks about lamb power. It's the lamb power of resistance. And that's what we're called to be about, to be empowered by the lamb, to be empowered by lamb power that helps us to resist the empire, to expose the empire for what it is and call it into question and resist its powerful influence. Now, there's a detergent force to lamb power. Lamb power is a really, really good detergent. And we hear in Romans 7 that the people who have resisted, the saints who have resisted in Romans 7, they have white gowns. Their, their, their gowns have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, it says. Now, blood is not just sacrificial imagery in the Bible. It's life imagery. It's the life of Jesus that they're talking about. And it's that blood that washes, washes the robes of the saints. And the, the typical translation of that is, is that it's white, but actually a better translation, and Brian Blunt uses this translation, is dazzling. It's radiance. It's the kind of stuff that is like the sun. It's washing something so it's so sun bright. Now this is powerful imagery for baptism. Because, because according to baptismal tradition, the baptismal candidate should wear a white gown. And, and, and if we're true to the book of Revelation, then maybe it should be some kind of a dazzling thing. I don't know. A radiant thing, maybe with lights on it. Maybe Christmas tree lights on it should be there. Because, because, because really, it's about exposure. Lights expose something that is going on, and they disrupt it. And so for the baptized... The gowns expose the atrocities of the empire. They, they expose any economic system that deforms and destroys and twists life. They expose that kind of thing. Now, I know that's a hard thing to talk about with, with baptism. I mean, when we baptized here, normally it's a, it's, it's a, it's a baby. It's, it's somebody who's innocent, but we all know we all know and we all live in a world in which we, uh, we hope that they don't get infected by the atrocities of the world, but they will. They won't get infected by racism, sexism, classism, but they will. Because it's in the water that we drink. And so that's why at a baptism, 
uh, we renounce evil and injustice, all that stands against uh, God's righteousness and love. That's why we do those kinds of things. So the white gown, and I don't, I don't have a I big claim on whiteness here. It's just the dazzling gown. It's the dazzling gown of the baptized. And we get all of that from Revelation chapter 7. Is, 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 is who we are as baptized people. We're, whatever we've got on now, we've got on these dazzling gowns. These dazzling, radiant gowns of exposure. Exposing what's going on all around us. Now there's a second tree in the garden, and you know that. And it's the tree of the knowledge, it's the tree of life. And if you remember the story, a cherubim is placed there with a flaming sword to guard access to the tree of life. And so this flaming sword is going round and round and round and round and round. According to Francis Young, a very fine scholar, um, uh, who has a really interesting essay on the tree of life, she says that in, that in early Christian imagination, the tree of life that was guarded in the garden, it sunk its roots deep down only to come up at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. To gather up humanity in its branches, along with the birds. Isn't that a beautiful image? The cross and resurrection gather up humanity. But don't you see, again, this is an exposure image, because, because what do you get if you're in a tree? You, 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 get, you get to see the landscape. And perhaps the crosses that litter the landscape of the world. And so James Cone's powerful book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. The Cross and the Lynching Tree just isn't about lynching. It's about healing after lynching. It's about looking, it's, it's, it's about healing after we name the stuff that's out there. And that's what the tree of life does. It nourishes us with a kind of resistance, the kind of resistance that is kind of like land power. That's what the tree of life does. And that brings us to the third place that the tree of life emerges, according to early Christian imagination. It emerges in this text, at the Lamb of God, the new Jerusalem come down from heaven, in which everything is reversed. Everything that happens in the empire is reversed. All the stuff that is taken from the empire, it ends up in the gates, and the gates are open for everyone. They're open day and night, so everyone gets access to the stuff. And the streets are, are of gold, and they're transparent as glass. And my interpretation, I think I've given this to you before, my interpretation is because, because what's the most common thing there is but a street? And if the streets are of gold, that means, that means everybody gets a share of the riches of the empire. Everybody gets it. And what about the transparent stuff? Well, my interpretation is, nobody's going to probably go with me, but my interpretation is because there's no backroom deals, right? But then you get this river of life, this river that has all this baptismal symmetry, symbolism in it, this river that is coming from God and from the Lamb. It's, it's a river that's powered by Lamb power, and it comes down, and the tree of life is on either side of the river, so it doesn't make any difference on which side of the river you stand. You get the tree of life. Isn't that beautiful? And the leaves are for the healing of the nations. So, so in effect, it's, you know, you Psalm 1 picks it up. We who ponder God, we who ponder God and follow in the way of God are like trees by a river 
we stand firm. And the tree of life has stood firm all these centuries. From the garden, to the cross, to the new Jerusalem. Standing firm against Pharaoh, against Caesar, against the Crusades, against all, all manner of violence in the world. And, stand, and, and calling us to do the same. A non-violence that speaks of the love of God that will not let us go. The one in whom we live and move and have our being. A love that is concretized in justice. And so here we are, folks. We've got these dazzling robes we're all wearing. Perhaps it's our skin. Perhaps, but, but whatever it is, it's got these dazzling robes. Is it kind of like stardust? <laughs> Maybe. Baptized people. Because we are golden. And because God in Christ has empowered us to get back to the garden. So for God's sakes, no, for God's sake, pick a fight. Amen.